This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears, the podcast that takes a look at new current films and connects them with films of the past that you may not have seen or have yet to discover. Uh, my name is Stephen Cook, and I'm an arts writer here in Halifax with the Chronicle Herald. And my name's Karsten Knox. I am a film writer. I have a blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And today we've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. Uh, we are eastbound and down here on Lens Me Your Ears. We're going to look at the films of the late, great Burt Reynolds. The F-bombing New York Times bestsellers, Thug Kitchen. Gwyneth Paltrow's two-time co-author, Julia Tertian. The polite and proper Great British Bake Off's food stylist. What do they all have in common? They're all at the intersection of culinary arts and pop culture. And they've all been guests on The Food Podcast, a Village Soundcast network production where personal stories are shared through the lens of food. If you really want to connect with someone, just write them a letter. It was a dark and stormy night. The only light came from a lantern swinging from the gatepost. A pathway to where? What's your pathway? What's in your brown paper bag? I think for me, it's more about a feeling, is that when I'm writing about food, I'm really writing about people. It was a springboard to learn about culture, history, and of course, health. As a story, I almost want there to be some internal conflict, even if it is just eggs or French toast. I am the architect of my own health. I decide what direction I go in. I build its foundation with every thought I think and with what I eat. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. Burt Reynolds died September 6th at age 82. In the 1970s, he was the most popular movie star of his generation, him and Clint Eastwood, though. Uh, Eastwood, uh, I guess, has, well, he's kept making movies and he's kept directing movies. He's managed to sustain a critical uh, mass uh, in a way that maybe Burt didn't. Burt peaked and then fell off and then kept working. He kept working right to the end, in fact, but... uh, he wasn't able to sustain the kind of star attraction that he had in the 70s. Now, I grew up, but we both grew up, I guess, at that era where he was kind of unavoidable. If you like movies, uh, <laughs> you, you couldn't get away from Burt. He worked all the time, and he starred in a number of huge hits. You know, when we talk about the success and the longevity of franchise fantasy movies like Star Wars, well, the other movie that year was Smoking the Bandit, and that was huge, and that had a had a pretty large cultural impact. But, you know, these days, looking back at those movies, <laughs> they, they haven't aged quite as well. I think Burt has an inestimable charm. I mean, it's just, it's, he, he was effortless in the way he carried movies. And I remember him as a kid, uh, he was the first guy that broke the fourth wall. You know, he, he sort of winked at his audience in a way that was totally charming, totally adorable. Uh, and I thought he was the coolest guy. I mean, next to Clint, he, you know, Burt Reynolds was super cool. He had that, he had that ease, especially with light comedy that uh, could not be beat. And he had an appeal to, you know, he did a lot of what you might call, what we might call now redneck comedies, a lot of cars, a lot of booze, and uh, a lot of action. Um, And, uh, but he had, uh, as I think we'll discuss, he had a lot of uh, versatility 
as an actor. He did like comedy, but he was actually pretty good at drama too in the right kind of role. I think yeah. he just, he didn't have the best instincts for his own career and he made some kind of questionable choices. <laughs> oh, a few. <laughs> but uh, watching these movies again, uh, re- revisiting them given his passing and, uh, you know, I just, it reminded me that he was a real movie star, that he could just show up on screen and you wanted to watch him. Yeah, even if the movies aren't great, uh, Bert usually brought something to the table. I, I mean, he was kind of like, uh, you know, the Clark Gable of the 1970s is basically, and, and into the 80s, but but that's kind of the best way to describe him. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, Clark Gable went out on a high note with uh, The Misfits, directed by John Huston. Uh, Bert wasn't so lucky to have a kind of legacy film late in his career. Uh, you, know, you look at the last decade or so of his films, and it's it's clearly just work for hire, just yeah. keeping the keeping the bills paid, and and certainly people wanted to employ him. I mean, the, just having his face on a, you know, on a video box or you know in the cast list on Netflix or whatever would would be enough to in, you know gets uh, he had enough of a following that it would incite somebody to well just watch Bert one more time and and hopefully uh, see some of the old magic. But I, I do remember growing up, and it seemed like there wasn't a time when there wouldn't be something with Burt Reynolds in it playing in the theater. It's, it's nuts. In 1975, he made four feature films, and, and those were all leading roles. Uh, you know, 1973, he had three features, uh, and, and so on and so forth. He just, he, he was tireless. And, um, you know, and he, he usually would put his money into endeavors of restaurants, dinner theaters, you know. I don't know how much of the town of Jupiter, Florida he laid claim to, but he seemed to be a big presence down there and you know and he was certainly producing things and and uh, would get in, into directing and, and turn out to be a pretty good sort of solid hollywood programmer director so you know uh, definitely a man of many talents and I, I kind of remember him as as a celebrity first because I, I certainly wasn't old enough to get into his movies uh you know i think i became aware of him maybe when ww and the dixie dance kings came out in 1975 and that was kind of a popular film because it had a lot of car chases and it's kind of a proto uh, Smokey and the Bandit, where he uh-huh. plays like a, a charming, you know, low class thief who hooks up with a, an early uh, country rock and roll band. So, and they're just cruising around the South in the in the in the early fifties. Uh, and then that's that's kind of basically it. <laughs> there isn't a lot more substance to it. And of course, it's been unavailable for years and years. But but that was I think one of the first films where I was aware of him. I saw the posters, and there was a quite a quite a, an extensive ad campaign for the film, and and. Uh, you know, and, and after that, he just kind of steamrolled. I mean, Smokey and the Bandit was shortly after that. And then The Longest Yard, Semi-Tough, uh, just so many films that he, you know, you can classify them as anything other than Burt Reynolds movies, yeah, really. True. Because, uh, you know, there was there would always be an element of comedy, uh, no matter how serious the subject matter was, and uh, unless it was a full-out comedy, unless it was like a cannonball run thing, which is probably the first movie of his that I saw in a theater. Um but, uh, you know, they, they were never really meant to be taken that seriously, even, you know, when he was doing those more tough guy films in the 80s where they're kind of more gritty and hard-boiled, um, trying to double down on, on that kind of tough guy image. But, uh, you know, there was always that kind of layer of charm of kind of movie star artifice on, on each of these projects. Yeah, absolutely. And I I really admire that about him. And, and you know, I guess he's kind of like... 
the, the he is the movie star of the generation that came before us in some ways. But as kids, you couldn't, uh, you know, we couldn't get away from him. And I, I've been reading about all the the roles that he turned down that could oh, have allowed yes. him to have like serious critical appeal. Like he he didn't get he did he chose not to do the role of Garrett Breedlove, which is the role that earned Jack Nicholson his second Academy Award uh, for um, Terms of Endearment. So he didn't do that. And apparently he was also one of the names up for the Richard Gere role in Pretty Woman, which could have been a real comeback for him. It's hard to imagine anybody but Richard Gere in that part, but uh, it would have been a very different film, oh, I think. for sure. <laughs> but yeah, those are the <laughs> kinds of things that he just didn't say no to. And of course, later on, he had kind of a resurgence because he was in the, the well-regarded Boogie Nights as uh, this pornography producer and he was charming and he had he brought all of his star power to that role he was you know he was sort of the elder statesman by that point in the late 90s and uh even apparently he didn't like that role he he was i don't know if he didn't like the movie he just he i gather he, you know i don't know if this is this is apocryphal or not but apparently went into his agent and says you know don't give me those kinds of roles again like he was very upset about it because he didn't think it was any good and then, of course, he got all sorts of approbation and attention and uh, affection from the industry f- and from the public for that role. And, and he didn't, but he didn't really capitalize on it. It was just like he went on to, in his late career, he did a lot of, as you said, sort of work for hire um, as, he, as supporting roles and and things like, you know, a remake of The Longest Yard in 2005 or uh, things, you know, and, and some of them, it's, it's certainly good work in Citizen Ruth. Uh, Mystery Alaska are movies that he was in later, but we're going to look at uh, stuff that he did early in his career, and I think during that sweet spot, the the the, <laughs> yes. the, the mid seventies to mid eighties. Now, you suggested that uh, we start with Navajo Joe in nineteen sixty six. Well, why I, not? I don't know if I'm going to be able to forgive you for this <laughs> <No>. one. <laughs> um, it's not. It's not that. It's I. I you know, it was just. Uh, I guess it's one of his first starring roles, and um, it's a spaghetti western. It's very much in the tradition of the Sergio Leone spaghetti westerns. It's got those, you know, those uh, big soundtrack, crazy like like a score the that's pretty, you know, seen from our reference from from 2018. It's it's pretty offensive stuff, you know. Oh, it's, for sure. It's yeah. uh, he plays a. a uh, a, uh, a Native American whose uh, wife is killed by bandits, and then he spends the whole movie basically trying to find ways to get back at them. Funny enough, though, he the the film spends a lot of time with the townspeople, kind of caught in the middle between the bandits and and our hero, and less time with our hero. Like he's someone who just kind of is on the outside of the frame of the movie until about the end of the first act, and then he starts to show up, uh, and clearly like a force <laughs> to be reckoned with. Yeah, but, this kind of grim enforcer from from the from the wastelands, as it were. But uh, not a lot of dialogue. Yeah, he apparently said that it was so awful; it's only shown in prisons and in airplanes because nobody could leave. Um, <laughs> yeah, and he was also complaining about the wig that he had to wear. Uh, but uh, anyway, it's I guess I would say maybe for Bert completists, but I I wouldn't say rush out and see Navajo Joe. I I have a higher opinion of this film, but it's, you know, you have to really love spaghetti westerns to love this (laughs) film. Uh, It's got a great Ennio Morricone score, even though uh, he's credited under a pseudonym for whatever reason. It might just be for the, often they would change a lot of the Italian names in the credits to Americanized names for the North American release. Oh, I didn't realize that. I think he's billed as Leo Gordon or something like that in the credits, but it's actually an Ennio Morricone score. Yeah, it's, it just, I was like that chanting that like faux, you know, Native American yeah. kind of sound where I'm just like, and it's like Navajo Joe. I mean, it's, 
Yeah, it's he's phoning it in awful. a little bit with this one. <laughs> but, you know, the, it, Morricone still was like heads and tails above any of the other composers, really, that were making movies for, or making music for these films. And it's directed by Sergio Corbucci, who liked to inject a little bit of politics into everything he did, maybe more so than Sergio Leone. And in fact, uh, the story goes that Burt Reynolds thought he was going to Spain to make a movie for Sergio Leone. <laughs> and he got there and uh-huh. found out it was... A different Sergio. Sergio the wrong Sergio. It was Sergio Corbucci, who... Uh, some some diehards actually prefer Corbucci's films because they're sort of leaner and, and not as grandiose as uh, uh, Leone's. But, uh, you know, I, I have a fondness for both of them. Uh, this is not one of Corbucci's strongest films because it just it's so, plot-wise, it's so simplistic. It's just this kind of straight-ahead tale of revenge, basically. Um, but uh, it's, it's fun to watch Bert when he is on screen. It's fun to watch. He's very physical. He does a lot of stunts, a lot of physical fighting and you know, jumping onto horses and knocking people off of horses and he takes some falls and he, you know, I mean, he, he, he was famous for doing a lot of his own stunts. Uh, you know, obviously that would decline as his star rose, but he all, you know, he, he did a lot of his own driving and then this would be a recurring theme. Uh, you know, he'd show up on like talk shows and demonstrate various car stunts, like how to, you know, do a spin with the emergency brake or whatever. Uh, and uh, he is actually pretty impressive as that because you can tell it's him. And I actually yes. there was one shot early on where he he jumps off a horse. He's he's fighting with one of the bandits. And the and as he rolls, the camera rolls with him and then comes sort of pulls back uh, as he gets to his feet. And it's actually a really cool camera move because you're kind of with him as he you know, he's very deft and and uh, and coordinated and like it, you know, you, that stuff isn't easy, as anyone could tell you, like to do that on camera and make it look cool. And he was able to do that. Yeah, it's it's, it's a sign of, you know, the kind of physicality he's going to bring to his roles in much better films like Deliverance and and so on, uh, you know, in just a few short years. Uh, you know, this is, you know, he was really looking for a way out of the TV career. I mean, he'd done a ton of TV work uh, up to this point, obviously Gunsmoke. Uh, playing uh, a character on Gunsmoke uh, was was where most people would have known him from at this point. But he'd been on Alfred Hitchcock Presents and, you know, any number of even some of the live shows, I think, uh, in the late 50s and so on. And uh, I think this is the fourth feature film that he was in. Uh, there's one earlier than this where he has a starring role called, I think it's called like Operation CIA or something equally generic. And uh, he made a similar joke where he said they couldn't show it on airplanes because you know, there'd be too many fatalities from people trying to jump out of the plane to get away from it. Um, uh-huh. And uh, uh, this is, I just took this off of IMDb trivia, but um, when, when Bert made his famous appearance on Archer, um, on the animated series about the secret agent Sterling Archer, who adores Burt Reynolds, and there's Burt references throughout the show, but when he actually did make an appearance uh, playing himself on a show called The Man from Jupiter was the name of the episode. And and uh, Archer tells him that uh, watching Operation CIA was the reason he became a secret agent, which was a nice little in-joke there because I'm sure most of the people watching have never seen that film in particular. <laughs> um, and uh, I kind of want to go back and rewatch that episode. I think it's on Netflix and just see how many references they make to weird, obscure little corners of... of uh, Burt Reynolds' career, because I'm, I'm sure that the, the folks behind Archer are, are massive fans and probably watched as many of these films as they could get their hands yeah, on. Yeah, maybe more than we did. Oh, uh, yeah, I'd say so. Now, there are so many of his films to enjoy, and it's hard to really know where to start. In our hour here, we are going to try and see talk about as many as we can. We both watched a bunch. I, I've heard of Sam Whiskey from 1969, but I've never seen it. Uh, so there was that, which we missed. And I have seen years ago, I saw White Lightning in, in 73, which introduced the character of G- 
Gator McCluskey. Now, I watched the sequel, which we'll talk about, um, and of course, Deliverance. Deliverance sort of really brought him, I think, to a larger audience in a way, and it, and it's funny the role he takes in that because it's it's an ensemble. There are four lead characters, John Voight, Ned Beatty, Ronnie Cox, and Bert, and Bert is definitely the sort of alpha male. He's the most physical. He's the most charismatic. He's the best looking of them, you know, clearly, and, and anyone watching that film, uh, the John Borman classic, would uh, immediately think, oh, this is the guy who's the hero here, but not too much spoilers, but something happens that disables him from really doing very much, and it's uh, really quite unpleasant, and that allows <laughs> another one of the characters to sort of be prominent and have to take a larger sort of arc. Uh, and it, it's really canny casting. I thought it was really well done. It's also prominently uh, interesting to see, and this is true of Navajo Joe, I guess, uh, Bert without the mustache, because the mustache became so associated with him that it's weird to see him without it. And anyway, so this is early in his career, he, before the mustache became ubiquitous, this is one of those roles. Yeah, he doesn't have it in uh, WW either, which is interesting. Oh, yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, Deliverance, of course, is a film that most people will know, and it's absolutely essential as part of any watching uh, Burt Reynolds, uh, you know, going back to watch his stuff from his career, because it's, it's terrific. I also recommend The Longest Yard, where he plays a former NFL quarterback who gets, uh, gets thrown in prison and then winds up having this big football game in jail with the uh, guards uh and it's yeah it's entertaining enough and he was starting to get that real sort of mix of drama and light comedy vibe with that one but now you watched ww and the dixie <laughs> dance kings a movie that i only knew uh and you also watched nickelodeon now these are movies that you had had some previous experience with i didn't know them but uh but what did you make of those well i, I did want to note that the the, the earliest my earliest Burt Reynolds experience, I just had a flashback. Um, there's a film of his from 1970. It was made for Universal. It was a studio picture. It wasn't like a cheapy shot abroad or anything like that. He was in a film called Skullduggery. Okay. Which is, has never been made available on home video for whatever reason, like some of these other titles <laughs> that we we're talking about. Uh, you think Burt's star power would enable somebody to dredge some of these titles out of the... The um, the back vaults, but Skullduggery, he he leads like a scientific team that goes down to New Guinea, uh, where they've uncovered a, a missing link of humanoid, uh, you know, jungle dwellers, and and you know the but the but the uh, the encroachment of humanity is is gonna is, is a potential threat to these jungle dwellers, and a kind of battle breaks out, and I, it used to show up on the Great Money movie out of Bangor, Maine, quite a bit. So I'm guessing it showed up on a lot of those kind of local TV movie matinee kind of programs and, and uh, not an auspicious film, probably one that he didn't care to be remembered for. Maybe he, act, maybe he actively blocked it from ever showing up uh, in any form. But, you know, if, if you ever see it on TCM or something, it might be worth seeing just to see, you know, get a taste of like early Burt before, before his screen persona had really, uh, really solidified. But um, yeah, the, uh, w, like I say, WW and the Dixie Dance Kings was one that, again, not available. But it, it, it's a lot of fun. It, it's his first teaming with Jerry Reed, okay, who's also sure. in it. So, it, it you know, as the kind of proto-blueprint for Smokey and the Bandit, it, it kind of uh, it kind of at least has that claim to fame. And, and maybe that's one of, one of the reasons why it's not available, aside from the, the fact there's all this 1950s music in it. I mean, there's even Elvis tunes in it. And I'm guessing the cost of uh, licensing those for video was just too... Um, too exorbitant to for any company to bother putting it out, but I, I imagine it'll turn up at some point. Maybe Bert's passing will see some of these uh, some of these titles 
come out of the woodwork, as it were. But uh, but Nickelodeon is interesting. It's uh, his uh, oddly enough, it's his second film with uh, Peter Bogdanovich. Um, Bogdanovich hired him originally to be in his musical, his Cole Porter musical, At Long Last Love. Oh, yeah, sure. I've heard of it. Which is kind of famous as one of those great Hollywood disasters where he basically hired a bunch of actors who couldn't sing or dance terribly well to be in a kind of Fred Astaire stylized musical with the musical Cole Porter. And uh, I think they also recorded the vocals live. Like he wanted uh-huh. to actually have them singing and dancing while they were on, while, dancing. You know, yeah. on the set. And uh, the result is, uh, it, you know, it's a weird train wreck to watch because he also starred Eileen Brennan and Sybil Shepherd is his co-star. Eileen Brennan is in there and, and, and a bunch of other actors from the kind of Bogdanovich stable. And uh, it's, yeah, it's not good. It's, you know, it's a nice try to kind of revive the feel of those classic kind of Art Deco 1930s musicals. But, uh, you know, if they maybe cast some people who could sing and dance, it uh, it might have been a different story. But, you know, I guess they went for star power over, uh, over ability in this case. And the novelty of it did not attract people to this film. It was universally... Uh, Universally panned. I actually oh. have the soundtrack LP at home just to kind of remind myself of, uh, you know, the, some of the follies of, of Hollywood, I guess. But, I, I you know, I, I guess it has a certain charm watching them kind of, it, it's kind of like watching a, some like big Hollywood stars doing like a summer stock musical or something right. like that. Like, it, it's just a very odd experience to watch it. And I think it does, it's, I don't think it's widely available, but I think it has turned up on like TCM, for example, from time to time. So it's it's not impossibly hard to find but you know some people probably would prefer that it remain buried <laughs> so bert had a bigger role though in nickelodeon yeah well you know f- for whatever reason he agreed to work with bogdanovich again despite being completely you know scathed <laughs> for his work in, well, bogdanovich had, he had a lot of a lot of disasters in his career but he was also very well respected as a filmmaker yeah well i think well like i say a long last love was kind of uh, kind of a flop but uh but there was also What's Up, Doc, which was a huge hit and right. was like one of the Warner Brothers' biggest comedy hits of the, of the early 70s. So, you know, he still had some goodwill uh, in Hollywood. And uh, he made uh, Nickelodeon with Columbia, with which he'd made uh, or through whom he'd released uh, The Last Picture Show, which, of course, was the film that really put him on the map. So uh, they they teamed up again, Columbia Pictures and, and Bogdanovich. And they... but. It, the director fought with the studio almost every inch of the way on this picture. Uh, he wanted to cast it with a lot of young up and coming actors. He wanted to have, uh, it's about, it's about a young, you know, film director who kind of stumbles into the job almost by accident in the early days of silent film, like before birth of a nation, even like when it's hence the title, they're just making these quick, cheap and dirty pictures to show for a nickel a pop at a, you know, a storefront Nickelodeon movie theaters, hence the title. And, uh, and he wanted uh, John Ritter to play the director. And you know, this is pre-Three's Company. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, John Ritter was a good friend of Bogdanovich's, who uh, I guess knew his dad, the cowboy star Tex Ritter. And, uh, but the studio uh, didn't go for that. And uh, oh, he wanted Jeff Bridges to play the role that Burt Reynolds would eventually play, which is that of a kind of a stuntman turned cowboy movie star, basically. Uh, and uh, and he brought back Ryan O'Neill, with whom he'd worked with in What's Up, Doc, and Paper Moon. So uh, in a way, this was going to be kind of almost like the third film in a trilogy. It was going to be shot in black and white, like uh, Last Picture Show and Paper Moon, and it was set 
you know, in the in the kind of American heartland like Paper Moon was, and and you know, at Long or um, Last Picture Show, which was uh, I believe set in Texas. And it's an interesting film. It, it is available on uh, on DVD. There's there's even a double featured disc with uh, Last Picture Show, oh. uh, so you can get both films and kind of compare them. Uh, but you know, Columbia didn't let him shoot it in black and white. They didn't let him use the stars he wanted. Um, John Ritter's in the film. He plays the cameraman in a kind of a lesser role, which I think uh, Bogdanovich sort of beefed up to kind of for him to kind of make up for the, the fact that he didn't get to star in the film. Uh, Jeff Bridges is nowhere to be seen, um, uh, and which is unfortunate because Jeff Bridges in his early roles is actually really appealing in, in, in things like Last Picture Show and and Bad Company and so on. Uh, but uh, you know, so and Bert feels a little anachronistic playing kind of an early Hollywood movie star, or not even Hollywood movie star, because they weren't even in Hollywood yet. Um, they're just out there shooting in the wilds of California. Uh, Bert's very appealing, and he, he does some fun stunts, you know, falling off of buildings and that kind of stuff, um, you know, going up in a hot air balloon and so on. And he and Ryan O'Neill had this kind of interesting kind of screwball comedy chemistry, if you will. You know, O'Neill's playing his kind of milk toast, mild-mannered character, and, and, and Reynolds is kind of trying to ride roughshod all over him. And, and there's a fun fight scene between the two, which, which has its moments. But the film is very uneven. It's, it's, uh, it's at, moment, at times it's, like a, it's filmed like a slapstick silent movie, and other times it's meant to be taken more seriously. And, uh, you know, they use a lot of, you know, Iris is out and in. They use a lot of silent film technique, but the acting is very modern, and it, it just doesn't quite, doesn't quite all gel together. But I, having said that, there's lots of stuff to enjoy. There's lots of great character actors appearing throughout the film. Uh, and it is kind of fun to watch this look at the early days of, uh, of movie making uh, before the big studios really uh, came to prominence. And it's, it's based on the real stories from people like uh, directors Alan Dwan and Raoul Walsh, who, of course, uh, Bogdanovich spent much of the 60s kind of tracking down people like them and, of course, great directors like John Ford and so on. And oh, He was know, pals with them. Orson Welles. I yeah, think. and well, he wanted Orson Welles to be in this movie, too. He wanted Orson Welles to play the kind of the bullying movie producer, and uh, Columbia didn't go for that either, and they got Brian Keith. Uh, who, of course, we would see uh, in another Burt Reynolds film a few years later, well, many years later, uh, Sharky's Machine. So we, we see a lot of recurring faces in these films. Uh, Burt liked to work with uh, a lot of the same people over and over again, whether he was in charge of the film or not. Um, but, you know, it is one of the more kind of upper echelon films, I guess, that he would have appeared in in the 70s. You know, it's, it's, it's you know, in terms of quality, it's a notch above the drive-in fare like White Lightning and Gator. Uh, and it, it does have great production values. You know, they really get the feel of, of the 19-teens um, down pretty well in terms of fashion and, and the look of it. Tatum O'Neill is great as this kind of wiseacre kid who somehow joins this film crew and is, like, practically writing their stories for them, because, you know, because her, her, uh, her grammar school uh, English and comprehension is better than everybody else's, I guess. And... Uh, it's you know it's a hodgepodge that hasn't necessarily aged that well, but it's uh, it's it's it feels very authentic when it needs to, and 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 I liked it. I begrudgingly liked it, but uh, it's it's a bit of a mess. Uh, so if you like the other Bogdanovich films, if you like Paper Moon, if you like At Last Picture Show, it's definitely worth seeing this as kind of a coda to uh, to those films. But it's also kind of the sign of when his career starts to go into decline as well. <laughs> So by the 70s, uh, Burt Reynolds kind of has this kind of wandering career of, of projects that don't really 
coalesce, uh, you know, things like Deliverance, which is kind of a, a high art action film, and and then you know something like uh, like Seamus, which is a, a weird freewheeling uh, detective movie set in Boston, I think, um, which which is kind of like a nod to the old. Uh, you know, hard-boiled detective films. It's it's interesting, but it's kind of a rambly, shaggy dog kind of detective story. It, it's fun to watch, but completely uh, forgettable once it's over. But uh, but two films kind of solidified his kind of drive-in movie standing, and and that is uh, playing Gator McCluskey in White Lightning in 1973, and then returning to the character uh, in 1976 in a film that uh, marked Burt's directorial debut. And uh, they're they're fun movies. They're weirdly quite different from one another. Uh, the the tone of White Lightning and Gator couldn't be further apart. Even though he's playing the same character in the same kind of bayou locales, and he, you know he's he's running moonshine and so on. Um, White Lightning is kind of an action drama. It gets quite serious, even though it was kind of sold as kind of a freewheeling moonshining adventure film. Uh, it it does it does get pretty intense. And Ned Beatty from uh, Deliverance shows up as the, the sheriff. Uh, and, and plays a great evil Southern sheriff, you know, which is an archetype. Of course, we see it again in many films, including many Burt Reynolds films, and of course, uh, Smoking the Bandit being the most famous. And uh, and then Gator is more of the lighthearted comedy. Um, you know, we we see him team up with Jerry Reed again, who uh, I guess he became great friends with, uh, making WW and the Dixie Dance Kings, and of course would go on to even uh, greater triumph together in uh, the Smoky films, uh, and. Uh, and that's kind of you know he he was kind of split between wanting to make films of significance and and also appeal to his fan base, which were packing them in at the drive-ins. And I, I feel like that's kind of the war that uh, that we see going on in his in his psyche, <laughs> trying yeah. trying to kind of have have the best of both worlds throughout his career. Because uh, I mean he he had some serious acting training. Uh, he was on you know he worked on the stage, you know, all that TV work that he did was quite varied and it was quite a, a good uh, testing ground um, and uh, where he, he learned how to, you know, be in front of a camera and to some degree be himself in front of a camera, which is, of course, what we get in some of his best films. So for, as a result, uh, you know, you get films like Hooper, for example, where which is a fun, you know, thrill ride through the world of the Hollywood stuntman, but then you get him doing more kind of romantic dramas and comedies trying to appeal to a, a wider audience than something that you watch like Best Friends. So, yeah. uh, which we'll, I guess we'll talk about in a bit. But, but uh, it, it is interesting how he had these kind of two uh, kind of strains pulling at him. And, uh -huh. and I think, and, and maybe that's what makes his filmography so interesting because the, those kind of, uh, you know, purely entertainment drive-in attraction kind of films are still a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I can watch Cannonball Run just about any time. Sure, sure. And, and I mean, the second one is pretty much the same movie, more or less. Mm -hmm. um, and I can enjoy those films, but it is interesting to watch him kind of stretch his wings in something like, say, The End, where he directed and wanted to tackle some some fairly serious issues in a comedic way. Yeah, and you mentioned tone, and tone is really something that he was pretty loose with. Like, he had this comedic persona, and I watched Gator 
And uh, it has that good old boy romp of him, like, you know, on a, the, the first sort of section is him speedboating around the Okefenokee swamp as he's being chased by cops. He's been out of jail for a while. He's living with his father, who's in his 70s, and his daughter, who is like nine. And uh, what happens is he gets back to the, the shack, and they have, they're have they gone. And it's funny, because they're not even mentioned for the rest of the movie. They, <laughs> yes. Or they're mentioned, but I mean, we never pretty, see them again. Loose. They vanish. Uh, so then he, he basically, the... The um, the the justice, uh, the New Yorker, Irving Greenfield, played by Jack Weston, basically tells him, look, you got to unless you want to go back to jail, you've got to do some work for me. So he gets chummy with his buddy, Bama McCall, who is played by, as you mentioned, um, uh, Jerry Reed, who had a great career as a musician, too. I mean, he's a really talented singer and songwriter. Oh, he's one of the best country music guitarists of all time. Yeah, yeah. He was amazing. And he has he's a really good in this. Like, he actually plays a really nasty villain. And it becomes kind of a morality tale where it's like, is 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 Gator going to hang out with his buddy and go totally bad, like, like become a complete gangster in this town or is he going to try and stop him and and it, of course he's he 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 is at its heart a good guy so even though he he runs moonshine gator is a decent fellow but i mean there are moments where he, there's like 15 year old prostitutes uh <laughs> you know that he's got to deal with and he, who have who have addiction problems i mean those are issues are very heavy um and then in the middle of all this lauren hutton strolls in as a crusading <laughs> news person and then there's a different kind of movie waiting in the third act which is a romance but it's a little bit tragic and anyway it's um it's kind of a strange one uh and but this is something that happens the either he either tilts totally comedic or he he brings in some of these more serious elements and uh, and they don't necessarily all feel like they all match up. And, you know, and I think people, I think at their, I think most people just liked him. They wanted to, yeah. when, they, when you go to see a Burt Reynolds movie, you're going to hang out with Burt and whatever it is he gets up to. It's got, hopefully it'll be some car chasing. Hopefully it'll be some, some fighting, some fist fights and all of that. You know, Hal Needham, who directed *Smoking the Bandit*, was a stunt man, a stunt person once, once upon a time. And so, so you know that the stunts are are pretty convincing. Even now, like you go back and you watch like some of the stunts in a James Bond movie from the '70s or '80s, and you're like, oh gosh, you know, it's not so convincing. But but they're throwing, they're driving like in in. Um, in Cannonball Run, they are driving a car into a pool. Like that stuff happens, and it's a—it's uh, uh, actually well, maybe I shouldn't compare it to to James Bond because James Bond did jump a boat. That's the true. farthest boat jump in um, in one of those those Roger Moore seventies films. So in in fact, <laughs> set in a swamp. So yeah, maybe there was the golden some, gun. There you go. Uh, so there are some uh, elements that uh, that cross over here. And I mean, in my brain, of course, those are the movies I was watching as a kid. So I have a lot of fondness for them. Uh, Smoking the Abandoned and the Bandit. Watching that again. Uh, I realized how much of this is just riding on Bert's charisma. There's almost the stakes are that he has to, he and his buddy Jerry Reed have to go to, you know, three states over to pick up a bunch of beer and drive it back within a certain amount of time. The first question I had is they don't have cores in in Georgia. Like, why does he have to drive all the way to Texarkana to pick up the load of beer to bring it back? And then I realized, well, it's because, you know, it ain't been done before, and that's why they're doing it. Um, and then, of course, Sally Field shows up, and she's amazing. Uh, she She's a sort of hidden weapon in in this film, and, and uh, they made a bunch of movies together. That Their their charm and, and uh, chemistry was, was off the chart. Yeah, I, on the cores thing, I think the beer companies were a lot more regional back in the day uh -huh. before they kind of were all you know bought up by separate corporations and you know i think the brands you know each brand i mean initially each brand would have been you know 
uh, an individual brand run by one brewery, and then slowly they kind of amalgamated and so on. And, and there were, you know, there were certain boundaries that you couldn't sell one product. You know, right, they, but they neglect to tell us any oh, yeah, of these details. I guess, yeah, I guess, I guess it was just, you know, if, if, you're, <laughs> if you're going to a drive-in in the South at some point in the 1970s, you would have known that. You would have known those details, I guess. I guess Coors eh? was not available, you know, east of Tex- Texas. Right, but, right. Um, yeah, it's, it's a weird plot point that doesn't make a lot of sense today because things have been so nationalized and so on. But, you know, like old Milwaukee, probably you could only get that in around Milwaukee right. at one point or another and so on. I mean, I guess it's like now, like there's certain brands of beer out west that you don't get out here, for example. But, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's a weird plot point that I'm sure confuses a lot of people <laughs> when they watch it for the first time today. But, um, you know, and, and, and certainly Smoking the Bandit is the, the biggest success of his career. It's, it's kind of where all those pieces come together, you know, in terms of chemistry with his uh, with his co-star and... Um, you know, because I think back to like I saw I've seen films because we haven't really talked about them and it's been years since I've seen them. But things like uh, I mentioned Seamus, it was kind of like a trilogy of kind of crime films that he made. He made Seamus, Fuzz and Hustle. Uh, these three films. Uh, Hustle with Catherine Deneuve. With Deneuve. Would, what a weird what pairing. What a weird pairing and yeah. not one that necessarily works. And um, but I mean, Deneuve is great, of course. It's always great to watch her. But yeah, her and Bert together. Very strange. Um, and in Fuzz, he's paired with Raquel Welch. And, uh, yeah, not a lot of chemistry there either. Interesting film. It's loosely, you know, it's based on one of those Ed McBain 57th Precinct novels. So it has kind of like a serious um, kind of uh, foundation, but it, it's pretty loose and comedic and strange. Again, tone-wise, a lot of different things kind of come together and they don't quite coalesce. Um, but, but yeah, Smoking the Bandit is, is where everything fires on all cylinders. And when, when Burr passed away, a friend of mine used to work in uh, movie distribution. He was, uh, he was in Ohio, and, uh, you know, he just wanted to block book this film everywhere. And, the, you know, his superiors were saying, are you crazy? It's just some redneck chase picture. Why do we want to put it in so many theaters? And he's like, no, trust me, this is going to go big. And then, you know, like there was there was openings where so many people showed up the first weekend that it played in a particular drive-in that, you know, the cops had to use helicopters to kind of patrol the scene because the traffic was so insane and, and so on. And I mean, th- these these films really, you know, got into the heartland of America, you know, for lack of a better term. But, but you, know, you know, in places like Iowa and Ohio, and not just in the, you know, the, certainly the drive-in circuit in the South is big, but it was all over the place that these films were huge. You know, that uh, Star Wars was a worldwide phenomenon, but Smoking the Bandit really kind of, you know, got to the, soul of the country if you will and uh-huh. it, it, it's and it is so entertaining like it, and it's funny but it's a perfect drive-in movie because you could like go to the you can go to the snack bar and come back and not have missed a darn thing like it doesn't <laughs> right. it doesn't really matter it's just this right. kind of existential trip across the south you know to, to, you know we're just doing it because it hasn't been done sort uh-huh. of thing and uh there's there's weird little moments like where Sally Field and Burt Reynolds are discussing Stephen Sondheim in the car, which is just a weird, out of nowhere kind of. It's it's almost Tarantino esque, yeah, in the way it just kind of comes out of nowhere because she has this career as a dancer, um, you know. And the and and when I forgot that, like, oh yeah, why was the bandit? Why was the Smokey chasing him in the first place? And just because he he kidnapped or you know that he would absconded with the the woman who was going to marry his his, his son son yeah and uh <laughs> it just it's like really that's what it was all about holy crap <laughs> just uh-huh. I'd, i my mind was blown that was such a weird plot point yeah. uh 
But uh, there's a lot of pleasures incidental where, like the scene where Jerry Reed gets is in the bar and he runs afoul of these bikers and they beat the crap out of him. And then he gets back into his truck and he's all hurt and, you know, and his poor dog. And it's all just sad. And then he just drives the truck over the motorcycles <laughs> as he leaves. I mean, there's some real satisfaction there. Yeah, I love that. Oh, yeah. There's, there's so many pleasures to be had. I mean, it whips by. It's like. Uh, it's just over an hour and a half, I think. I mean, it's, you know, perfect for, for a driving thing as well. You know, just a short, leave him laughing, uh-huh. leave him wanting more. Um, you know, Bert grins at the camera, you know, after he's done his first evasion of a police pursuit. <laughs> that's a great, that's a great gift that you can find online, actually. Yeah, I've seen yeah. it, I've seen it a lot in the last few weeks, obviously. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's awesome. I, I think we should probably talk about yes. a couple of other films from the 70s uh, in this segment. And my favorite, probably my favorite romantic comedy of that era is Semi-Tough. Now, this is not a film that necessarily has aged that well in terms of its politics. Uh, however, there is some real truth to this in terms of its, uh, its focus and its it's uh the way it 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 shows the life in a football team and uh it's it's a it's a movie that's working on a lot of levels it's it's a sports movie uh in a very charming lightweight sort of way it's also um a love triangle between bert chris christopherson and the uh amazing jill clayberg she is the daughter of the owner of the football team while bert and chris christopherson are both character both buddies who play on the team and the fa- the owner of the team is Robert Preston the music man himself uh the script is dynamite and it's still very funny and the and the the sort of uh the chemistry between the three leads is amazing plus it's also a sort of a satire on on these sort of self-help, self-improvement programs uh, like EST that are still, some of those are still popular to some degree. I guess maybe some of these days we call them like borderline cults, but uh, they were really popular in the 70s and it is it is awesome to see these, uh, all of this stuff working and all of it working so well. Like, and as I said, there is some gender politics and some racial politics here that'll make you go, oh God. But um, the, the rest of it still really works and uh, a great cameo by uh, Carl Weathers as a, another football player. Later oh, that's in right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I didn't know he was in it when I watched it. And I was like, oh, <laughs> oh, Carl. Right. Yeah. It is, it's really something. Yeah, semi-tough. Uh, well, benefits from having a great director for one thing, which is not something that Bert always had the benefit of. Uh, and, and Chris Christopherson had, you know, by this time, you know, he'd been in a few movies and had had really, I mean, he's always kind of playing a version of Chris Christopherson on camera. But he, you know, he again has an incredible amount of charisma and really kind of holds the camera in in, in, a, in a really interesting and magnetic way. Uh, which probably comes from being on stage and performing to thousands of people on a regular basis. So, uh, you know, he's got that going for him. And Michael uh, Michael Ritchie uh, really uh, had a didn't make a ton of films, but each one has a really strong grasp of satire of of knowing how to play uh, a humorous situation without letting it get out of hand. He made uh, The Candidate with Robert Redford, which is a really incisive look at politics in the early '70s. He made Smile. Which is about beauty pageants, but but has sort of broader reaching implications. Like he, he seemed to make these films that focused on a kind of environment. In this case, it's uh, pro football, um, but somehow made it speak beyond just uh, being about football. You know, it, it says a lot about 
the, the state of the union at the at that particular time, and and most of his films tend to do that, and uh, and so he's gifted with a couple of great charismatic stars at the peak of their power is a great script, Jill Clayburgh, who's always an appealing uh, actor to to watch, and it's it's a film that I feel like maybe has become overlooked in uh-huh. in in recent years. Like when people think of Burt Reynolds in football, they think the longest yard, but uh, but this is is really worth a look because it does have. Uh, greater implications about relationships and uh, psychology and, and cults and fads and that kind of thing. Uh, and, and I love the friendship between, between the stars, that, that they have this, you know, you know the, the, it does get a little more romantic uh, as the film goes on, uh, but played to kind of comic effect ultimately. But it, it is kind of a, a nod to some of the screwball comedies of the 30s. There's one called um, Design for Living, where there's a bit of a triangle between... Uh, I'm trying to remember Frederick March and uh, now I'm forgetting maybe Carol Lombard I can't remember but but it's it's a criterion to put it out it's a great Ernst Lubitsch uh, comedy oh Gary Cooper is the other male star so this, I, I'm pretty sure that that was the, a bit of the template for this film and uh, but you know aside from copying that earlier film it really uh, you know has a real uh, presence and and uh, and a real feel for the era and yeah some of it is is a little less. Uh, a little less PC, uh, and it probably wasn't terribly uh, politically correct then either. But uh, but it was the seventies. Uh-huh. You know? It was kind of freewheeling era, and uh, and you know, like Jill Clayburgh comes across as a strong, independent woman in this film. She has a great character to play, and she holds her own against these two very popular uh, leading men. And uh, you know, you you said you you think a remake of this would probably. Go, go over quite well. I think there is modern a, sensibility. I, st- I think so. If you could manage to recapture that kind of um, chemistry, and I'm not sure that that even could be possible because they just the 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 casting here is so on the on the money. It's it's so great. Um, now, I also wanted to mention a f- another film, which was The End. Uh, you you had actually mentioned it earlier, uh, and this is it's hard to for me to understand how it is that there is quite enough movie here to fill the running time around this concept. But there it is. Uh, is a character who gets a terminal diagnosis from a, his doctor, played by Norman Fell. He goes and complains to his girlfriend, played by Sally Field again, that he only has months to live, and then his daughter, who he goes to see, and then his parents. Basically, he's just going around and deciding whether or not to tell them that he has, has his time is limited. Uh, and then he decides to kill himself. And the rest of the movie basically is him, his 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 hijinks as he tries to commit suicide. And this is a comedy. I don't know if I mentioned that. Is it a comedy? It's a comedy <laughs> with him and Dom DeLuise, who, of course, the the two of them would uh, get up to all sorts of craziness on the, the set of Cannonball Run. But uh, it's... It's. I mean, it, it. In in one frame of mind, it's totally tasteless, and in the other frame of mind, I'm sort of like, wow, I can't believe they're actually doing this. And actually, in. I mean, it doesn't all work, but some of it really does. Some of it is genuinely funny, and I think that's due to the again the talent of the performers. Yeah, it's. I mean, there's a lot of physical comedy in here. I I don't know if he's going for kind of a Blake Edwards kind of vibe. I mean, Bert as a director, I mean, you don't get a strong sense of you know, what he's after as a director, the, 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 the tone of the films he's directed is all over the map. But, but, uh, and the script is by Jerry Belson, who's kind of like a long, long running sort of TV guy. And it, sometimes it does have that kind of flavor that it's maybe more TV comedy than, than big screen comedy. But, uh, yeah, the appeal of the cast members, you know, we get to see Myrna Loy and, and Pat O'Brien, classic movie stars of the golden age playing his, playing his uh, parents, which is kind of a, 
a, a bit of a shock to see such well-known faces so late in their careers uh, as Burt Reynolds' parents. Um, so it, it's kind of a, a weird bit of a muddle, but it's such an unusual topic to be done as a comedy. Uh, I feel like maybe this one is ripe for a bit of reappraisal, perhaps. And uh, you know, but but a lot of it's played very broad, especially when you get Dom DeLuise as a bit of as kind of his psychopathic pal in in, in the. Uh, in the the institution that he winds up in, um, you know, definitely played for for broad, you know, often ridiculous laughs, but that's part of the charm of it too. It's it's you know again a film of its era, uh, and and it's it's very odd to see this kind of subject matter as it was treated. You know, what are we talking forty years ago now? <laughs> but uh, but worth a look if you've gone through all the sort of so-called Burt classics. This is kind of a a, a weird. Film under the bush, if you will, that uh, that uh, is worth a look if you've appreciated his stuff up to now. So, Stephen, as you mentioned, in the '80s, uh, Bert started to make a lot of these sort of hard-boiled cop action dramas where they were more serious. His his persona, there was still comedy in them, but that was largely carried by him personally. But the plots were much heavier and much more action-violent. Uh, one I remember from when I was a kid that we watched was Sharky's Machine. It's a cop drama, again directed by Burt, set in Atlanta before Atlanta and Georgia became the popular place to shoot, um, and before Marvel made it cool to shoot there. Uh, it, basically, Burt is a homicide cop who shoots a bad guy in a city bus, but not before the bad guy shot the bus driver. So Bert gets busted down, or Sharky, I should say, gets busted down to Vice. And one of his um, first assignments is to patrol a governor candidate's rally and bust prostitutes. From there, he finds the names of the thousand-dollar-a-night hookers, including Domino, played by Rachel Ward, and actually a really good performance. Uh, she's quite, you know, uh, vivacious on camera and I think does quite well here through all the hairspray and the 80s soft focus. Um, <laughs> and it then the plot becomes about the governor and an Italian pimp and his PCP-addicted brother. And uh, the picture takes a while to get going, largely spending time with Burt Reynolds and his various cop buddies in the in the vice uh, department. Uh, and, uh, and of course, later on, it becomes more about a romance once Sharky surveils Domino for... I mean, he, he spends more time watching her than he spends t- together with her. So, you know, some of that romantic stuff doesn't work quite as well. And it's it's violent in ways that are, you know, pretty awful, awful to watch now. I mean, you think about it, but but I I would uh, I wouldn't call it a great movie, but I think it satisfies a decent cop kind of action movie. And the villain played by Henry Silva is pretty great. I mean, he's this PCP snorting. Dude. Yeah, uh, it's, pretty, yeah. it's pretty extreme. And only as only Henry Silva can be. I mean, he's a. He's a classic bad guy from that era. Uh, you know, I mean, he goes back to the Rat Pack. Uh, uh, he's in Ocean's Eleven originally. And then, you know, he spends a lot of the 70s in some of these cheap action pictures made overseas in the Philippines and elsewhere. But he's always an interesting presence. And he's, he's, he's always very intense. And here he you know, has, has this kind of uh, just maniac hitman. He, he's really, you know, just becoming increasingly more unhinged as the film goes along. He's a lot of fun to watch. And, yeah, I get, you know, I think of this film as being, you know, the whole is maybe less than the sum of its parts, especially because of the story. You're like just trying to remember what's actually happening as the story unfolds. You're tr- trying to figure out what the stakes are and like why people are interested in this thing and that. You know, it's it, it is a little confusing. It's it's yeah, or incoherent maybe. I you know, it all hinges on this kind of political campaign that's being waged in the background with Earl Holloman from Policewoman. Uh, as this candidate that this uh, you know this crooked uh, gangster wants to get into office, and I guess 
but but we don't really spend a lot of time with the politician. He's not really much of a character. He's more of a plot device. Uh, and and maybe if some more attention was paid to that, you know, the sort of political implications, it would flesh out a little bit better. But but yeah, but o- overall, it's kind of one to kind of watch and forget. But 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 Bert, you know, you see flashes of of the familiar uh, Bert character. He's, he's very grim a lot of the time. But then there's moments like where. You know, his one of his buddy cops has been shot, and they have a you know he's sitting he's lying there on the or sitting on the ground, you know, kind of with several bullets in him, and they have this kind of comedic conversation, and it's it's very much a you know Burt Reynolds. He's a sharky, comedic sharky. moment. Oh, sharky! I'm I'm shot, sharky. It's like I know. Hang on, buddy. I'm gonna I'm gonna get help. Or and, and then he and, starts and then to he keeps leave, coming back, and, and he's like, sharky, no, no, you you put him down, you put him down, and yeah, Bert keeps trying to leave, and he keeps saying, sharky, sharky, come on. And then yeah. finally, the 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 closing, the punchline is, sharky, I think I ruined a perfectly good suit, <laughs> you know, as he's bleeding out. Yeah, it's basically. it's a weird bit of comedy in a fairly serious moment, and uh, but uh, for the most part, it's pretty serious, and and it's it's got a great cast, Brian Keith. Uh, who uh, was in Nickelodeon shows up here as one of the one of the vice cops, and Charles Durning is like the head of the the vice department, and he gets to you know have some fun playing the the disgruntled uh, chief officer or whatever, and 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 like I say, it's 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 moments like that that are that make it fun, not maybe not the overall thing. Yeah, and I think that it's funny if you watch a bunch of his movies together around this time, you start to see the same actors show up again and again. Like he clearly had actors he liked to work with. And that's, you know, I think credit to him as a filmmaker and as a as a man making feature films at the time and drawing people together. Uh, you mentioned uh, Richard Libertini as a character. He's in <laughs> Sharky's Machine as one of Sharky's Machine, I guess. And he's also a guy with a very thick accent who's marrying Bert in Best Friends, a romantic comedy he made uh, about a Hollywood creative creative couple who are who get married after being friends for a long time and then find that marriage doesn't really suit them. Uh, and it's written by Barry Levinson and Valerie Curtin and stars Burt and Goldie Hawn, directed by Norman Jewis. And that's a film I think worth seeing. It's quite charming in a way that I I didn't expect. Uh, and it's set it's shot partly in 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 Buffalo in winter. And I it, you know after you see so much fake snow in movies, it's great to see real <laughs> snow. Um, I've been to Buffalo in winter. It's pretty grim. Pretty grim. Um, you know around this time. Bert was also having hits with as a Cannonball Run and Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. But he also made City Heat, where he finally teamed up with uh, Clint Eastwood. That was a film that wasn't great, had a very troubled backstory. Blake Edwards originally wrote the script and was supposed to direct, but he it didn't work out. Um, it's not a film I necessarily recommend, but again, the, the cast is great. Madeline Kahn and Nova Scotia resident Jane Alexander are both really good in it. And Bert and Clint, uh, it's a bit like chalk and cheese. They're their vibes aren't necessarily compatible. It's a period uh, crime drama that is is more impressive for the costumes and for the supporting cast than actual the story. Um, now, we yeah. also watched Stick, which is at <laughs> a certain point, I think right about now, mid-80s, uh, Bert's uh, son is going down as a leading man in Hollywood, but he's still, you know, working all the time, he made a bunch of, like, cop dramas, Malone, Heat, Rent-A-Cop, uh, but this one, I don't know if this is the best. I I, I remember it because of the stunts. Again, it has a, an amazing stunt where a, a stuntman who has been playing a villain in the piece falls off a balcony and as he shoots, as he goes down. And that was like my lasting image from the film when I was watching it as a kid. I watched it again. It doesn't really hold up, but it's interesting because 
again, Burt's directing himself from an Elmore Leonard novel, and, and Leonard adapted the book for the screenplay. This was before Leonard had his, like, peak in the 90s yeah. with Tarantino. But uh, it's... Uh, you know, it's Charles Durning. It's uh, it's another cast in that, a clown wig. In a clown wig with, or... with with bad eyebrows. Um, <laughs> and and Candace Bergen again. There's this pattern in his movies where the romantic sort of element doesn't show up until the third act, and it becomes a very different kind of movie when it does. Um, I think I liked I liked uh, Sharky's Machine more than Stick, but they're of a type here. They're very similar films, and, and equally convoluted story wise. At some point, I'm like, you know, I know. Okay, that guy's the the gangster that he's after, but why is he after him? I know that he killed his buddy after he gets out of prison, but, you know, there was some deal that was going down, which I didn't even understand, you know, stand. There's some money trade-off. I couldn't even, and then what was Charles Durning's actual role in the whole thing? He's always kind of lurking around the sidelines, and he, he owes Bert some money that was owed to the friend that got killed in this uh, money exchange gone wrong or whatever. But, it, yeah, it's it's definitely not one you watch for the plot. Because no. And Durning is, is much better in Sharky's Machine as a as sort of a cop. Oh, yeah. He's a way over cop. the top here. But here as a drug dealer, I'm just like, really? Like, this is just, this is a bad idea to cast him in that part. Yeah, it, it's and it's very 80s. It's got that padded synth 80s yeah, Barry, kind of score. Barry Dvorzen did the soundtrack. He's the guy who did the soundtrack for uh, The Warriors, which was oh, a great my. soundtrack. Uh, that sort of synth, but here it's you know it's a little more Miami Vice. Yeah, it's well, it's very Miami Vice because the thing is it's set in Miami. Although I think it was largely <laughs> filmed in Fort Lauderdale. And uh, and uh, but I had fun. And George Siegel is fun as this millionaire guy that. Bert goes to work for his character goes to work for him and he's somehow connected to Charles Durning they're somehow buddies right although it's never really explained why and and uh, and Seagal just smokes his cigars and and just is very you know garrulous and loud loud and, fr- yeah. <laughs> and friendly and 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 vulgar and it and ends over the title sequence uh, the end titles end with an Anne Murray song so there's your Nova Scotia connection for <laughs> this film <laughs> yeah it's something I yeah I, I don't want to say that people should rush out and see this one but uh, it was interesting to revisit and uh, and I guess I, yeah we didn't bother getting into any of those other ones of the 80s sw- switching channels I yeah. mean these are films that that don't have good reputations uh, and yeah and that's just that's where Bert the movie star kind of began to diminish. Yeah, I watched the trailer from Alone, and that was plenty. That was clearly where things were on the, on the downward slide. So that's been our look back at the work of Burt Reynolds, a movie star that we uh, have a lot of fondness for, and he sadly passed away recently. And we'll, uh, I think, I think I'll, uh, I'll still think of him fondly, even though some of those movies don't really hold up like they once did. But yeah, it was, it was a fun kind of filmography to wander through. We and we really, in some ways, we only really touched the surface because there's a lot of films we didn't get to. You know, Man Who Loved Women, The Man Who Loved Cat Dancing. Wow, no, no relation between those films. <laughs> um, one of a truly wonderful film that he's in called Breaking In with Scottish director Bill Forsyth, uh, filmed in the U.S., but uh, about a, a, an elderly uh, or an aging uh, safecracker who uh, gets convinced to do one last job by a wannabe and kind of dim-witted young criminal. Uh, but, but uh, you know, and Bert kind of do- doesn't wear a toupee. I guess we see him with his natural hairline receding and and uh and that's a wonderful film that really deserves some reappraisal and a reissue of some sort um but uh you know that was sort of his last great film before boogie nights came along in 
in uh, 97. But uh, there's a lot of films to choose from, and you almost can't go wrong. Even if the film is bad, Bird is usually fun to watch and bring something to the film. And and, uh, hopefully you heard about something that you might want to check out. All right. Well, thanks, uh, Stephen. We we got to go. It's uh, you've been listening to Lens Mirror Ears, the film podcast and show. We are available to be found on Facebook. And uh, if you're listening to us online, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher, and uh, please give us a good review and uh, give us five stars. We would appreciate any of that stuff. Um, we are also available on Twitter. Uh, we've got a, a Twitter handle, and uh, Stephen and I both have Twitter handles. What's yours, Stephen? At NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. And mine is named after my blog. It's Flaw in the Iris. And we have a Patreon account. Please send us uh, some coins if you like what you're hearing and you want to support what we do. Many, many thanks to CKDU for airing Lens Mirror Ears every Tuesday, every second Tuesday, I should say, at 5.30. And many also, many thanks to the people who put this together at Village Soundcast Network. Thanks again for listening, and uh, we'll be talking about movies again very soon. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Send feedback to Lends Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. <laughs>